0: And the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. All right, good evening. Welcome, and thank you to everyone joining us today from around uh, America and around the world. Uh, I'm Rob Larson, and I'll be one of our uh, speakers for this evening's uh, exchange. So, uh, just quickly, I am Rob Larson. I teach economics at Tacoma Community College, and I'm author recently of uh, Bit Tyrants The Political Economy. Of Silicon Valley, which I'm very excited about. And uh, joining me this evening is uh, the great Nicole Ashoff of Jacobin Magazine, and who also has a very exciting book. Nicole, would you like to?
1: I had to get it off the shelf there.
0: <laughs> yeah. The Smartphone Society it looks pretty juicy. I'm very excited about that one. Right, So we are going to be talking about uh, living in this crisis and how indeed. Uh, Big tech will not be able to uh, rescue us from this circumstance, Uh, certainly not unpoliced anyway. So uh, just to get us going here, I wanted to take just a couple moments and talk about the economics of this industry and why it has the kind of landscape that we see now and that maybe we're already sort of taking for granted in big tech. So one thing about the technology markets and the technology industries, you know, for search and social media and online retail, the tech sector. It has some unique economic features to it. And the main one that sort of dominates the way this market behaves is that there's uh, what we call a network effect associated with these kinds of industries. So some goods and services, I mean, you know, they vary. You can buy socks and haircuts and back rubs and cars on different markets within the capitalist economic system. But those goods and services, you know, they're very different. And so the markets End up being different as well, and when you have markets like these, they're mediated through network patterns. You know, so when you post something on Facebook or stupid Twitter, you know you're sharing that through a network where people come to that platform to see what you and other people are posting and to share their own posts for videos or updates or cat pictures or whatever it might be. Well, the network of these network features uh, have sort of unique economic ramifications. A big one is. Uh, Since the whole goal of these markets is to connect people in some way, to connect people on social media or to connect you, a smartphone owner, to a developer of an app that you might like to enjoy, it's about connecting people through those networks. Well, that creates a unique economic feature that we call the network effect. And essentially, the network effect occurs in a market in a scenario where as more people use the product, it gains value for other users. Like its value changes depending on how many people are using it. Now, that doesn't happen for other products. You know, you buy a pair of sneakers and then I buy a pair of the same kind of sneakers. That doesn't make yours more useful. They're just unrelated purchases, you know. On the other hand, if you're on Facebook and then I get on Facebook, I create an account, that makes the service a little bit more valuable to you because now there's one more party whose posts or, you know, applications or whatever might be useful to you. So if you're the first person with the phone you know, great, call yourself. It's not very handy. As soon as other people get phones, now the phone becomes useful to you because there's parties you can reach and business you can conduct in that way. Well, that network effect has a lot of ramifications, but a big one is that markets that have that network feature tend to be especially prone to monopolization, where you have just one, or sometimes one or two or three, very large, very dominant firms that completely monopolize, or anyway, completely operate the market. And this was the case through the phone networks. All through the 20th century, we had AT&T in the US being the monopolist for phone service back before You know, we had internet and messaging. So a pretty important industry at that time. Now, these days, the technology is very different. But the basic economic patterns are the same. So if you look at markets, you know, tech markets like social media or search or online retail, they're very conspicuously dominated by companies that, of course, we're all familiar with and that we can name. They're absolutely household name firms, you know, so. One sort of simple way to manifest that that I like to refer to is uh, some of you may know that right now the five biggest companies in America, like the largest firms in the United States, are all tech platform companies. So it's Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, like those five firms, those are the five biggest firms. And apart from Saudi Aramco, which is a pretty dubious valuation, they're actually the five biggest firms globally. And that's just sort of unusual, you know, to have the five biggest firms in the world all coming from one sector. When I was a younger person back in the 90s, uh, that was not the case. Back then you had, you know, the five biggest firms would be like Exxon, Walmart, Uh, you know, Chase Bank, uh, Microsoft probably, um, Berkshire Hathaway, something like that. These days, it's a straight wash for tech because these are all network-based markets. So they monopolize these new, extremely important industries. And we should say, I mean, this is what I say in page one of the book, uh, I rely on these companies constantly, just like you. But I mean, that's sort of the point, you know, try not to use any of these companies and their products. You might be able to take a Facebook fast and that's valuable. That's fine. You might be able to, you know, get away from, uh, you know, like say Apple, maybe you don't have an Apple phone or Apple computer. That's fine. But staying away from Amazon and above all Google, it's almost impossible. These firms have such useful services. They're legitimately useful functions, but they're owned by the and operated by these monopolists firms that of course you know went public back in the 90s or early 2000s. They have public shareholders. They're part of the capitalist institutional incentives, mm-hmm. just like traditional companies like Exxon and Walmart would be. you know So they themselves are under near-term profit target pressure that they have to meet and they will use these incredibly valuable technologies not so much to change our lives completely but to create new platforms for advertising. Or to create new ways that they can take our data and sell it off to other advertisers or other firms that want to track us in various uh, sinister and surprisingly uh, effective ways. And Nicole will talk about that a, a little bit as well. But just the very first lesson I think that we can draw from these uh, basic economic aspects of big tech is uh, the incredible power that these firms have. Companies like Walmart and ExxonMobil, again, like the old economy firms, have huge amounts of power. They control the work conditions for thousands of people and control how we get energy and access to the internet and how the retail economy works these are major major sectors as much as we like to talk about you know, the, you know the new economy and gig work and stuff the old economy hasn't gone away of course but these new firms have this kind of unique level of importance because they have so much control because of their near monopoly and just huge dominant status they have so much control over the flow of information and sort of are the successors to the classic old media back when you had you know, three TV networks to turn to. They are the successors of that, both in terms of stealing all their ad, ad revenue, but also in terms of being the great gatekeepers that shape what ideas we hear. And it's worth taking a moment just to reflect on how important that is. And I will say, in the last few years, people are sort of starting to wake up to the maybe, you know, pretty sinister uh, and just the big ramifications and the importance of that. Maybe people only woke up with the 2016 election where there was fairly mild uh, international meddling in our election, pretty modest compared to what the United States does abroad, even in Russia uh, itself historically, which is kind of interesting. We can always get into that in the Q&A. But gradually, things like that, um, you know, bit Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post for basically pocket change for him. These firms have gotten so influential people, People are now starting to see uh, how incredibly powerful they are and maybe not uh, necessarily being suspicious, but people are becoming more wary about these firms actually taking a few moments to look at the terms of service that uh, – uh, that decide what happens on these platforms that we're very used to using. Now that is still a minority thing. I mean, after all, you know, every time you download new software or just update, like the operating system software on your phone, you know, there's a large terms of service agreement. We're all, we all we've all seen those. You're, you, you're supposed to, you wish you click on and claim to have read, and of course you haven't. Of course you haven't. I'm an economist who studies these firms all the time. I don't read most of the terms of service. Why would you? It takes forever to read, and it's technical legalese. I mean, most people aren't going to understand half of what's in that, and of course, most of us have finite human lifespans. You know, we have a limited ability to justify taking big chunks of our day away from work or raising our kids or trying to keep up with the terrifying pace of modern events just so that we can comb through the terms of service about exactly what parts of my information they're allowed to sell off on and exactly what terms but at least people are becoming a little more wary which i think shows you know a broader uh, sort of pattern right now that we're living through, where people are becoming a little bit more antagonistic or suspicious of our big institutions, certainly including capitalism. We've all seen polls showing how especially young people, but it is across the board, of people getting more wary and a little bit more skeptical of our capitalist institutions. And I think this kind of growing information uh, awareness and control that these platform companies has plays a big role in that. And I would say too, you know, like the status of these companies, you know, people do want to argue that. And people will say that we've chosen these firms And if Google has 90 plus percent market share for online, like mobile search, like on phones, that's fine because we chose that. It's the free market. And I teach economics, so most of my colleagues would make that kind of point. But I would say it's not really supported by even the figures in this industry. So one figure I like to refer to just as an example to give you an idea of how the industry itself views these subjects. One person who's interesting is Hal Varian. And Hal Varian is Google's chief economist, their in-house economic analyst. And he was uh, speaking in the Financial Times, and they quoted him as saying, network effects unleashed by digital technology tend not to spawn free competition among equals, which is how conservatives sort of see the market and most economists. But instead, uh, it creates a winner take all effect in which a single company emerges with all the spoils. In the software era, that company was Microsoft. In the internet era, it is Google. Like openly comparing his company to the much hated Microsoft since its 90s era uh, antitrust trial. Pretty bold, but when you're talking to the Financial Times, you know that's the great thing about business media like the Times or the Wall Street Journal. It's capitalists speaking to other capitalists, and you'd be amazed at the stuff they say when they feel like they're in a closed room amongst themselves, you know, but luckily left-wing scumbags like ourselves can pick that stuff up and uh, make that dirty laundry come out. One last little story uh, I'll refer to quickly about the power of these firms, and then uh, I'll stop for a moment, is um, the big uh, conspiracy that uh, Apple and Google and a couple of other firms had back in the 2000s. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yes, this I did use the word conspiracy. This is a legally adjudicated conspiracy, meaning it came out like in court. And we can say that there was a secret conspiring of some powerful figures because we have their emails. Because they had a, they somehow let this this uh, court case go to trial, and that means all of this, all of, the, this uh, all of this, all uh, this documentation through the discovery process goes into the public record, and sneaky leftist economists like me can dig it up and put it in books and stuff. So this is back in 2005 through 2010. This is a time when Google and Facebook were still growing very quickly even compared to today when their network effects were driving their growth into modern platforms that completely dominate their industries. But back at that time, it was getting tough for them just to hire enough skilled uh, professional personnel to scale up their platforms, you know, hiring people who can write software and do elaborate platform coding. It's not exactly like hiring a day laborer, like there's a fairly scarce supply, especially when the market's going through huge exponential growth with network effects driving it. So that Apple and Google and other big Silicon Valley and tech firms were having a hard time hiring professional staff and software writers, and they were having to pay them outrageous salaries and all the fancy benefits that you hear about at Google and so on. And so we now know from their own documents is that there was a corporate criminal conspiracy, which they were found legally guilty of in a legally sanctioned court, uh, mainly between the two big ringleaders of it, who were then Apple CEO Steve Jobs, modern capitalist con. And uh, the then CEO of Google, who at that point was uh, Eric Schmidt, right, uh, who's now just a freelance uh, douchebag. And if you take a look at what they wrote to each other, it's interesting. They basically agreed on a no poaching agreement. So yes, we're both desperate to hire these coders. And because we're competing amongst ourselves to hire them, we have to pay them outrageous salaries. And it's how markets are supposed to work for skilled laboring professionals that's supposed to work that way. Well, these companies hate that. And so what they realized was they would benefit it if they came to a no poaching agreement. I won't try to take your coders if you don't try to steal mine. And so they work this out. And their emails all constantly talk about how we have to keep this off the record. The moment that people find out about this, it's going to look very bad and we could be in legal trouble, which absolutely happened. So, uh, for example, We have an email from uh, Steve Jobs, writing to uh, Google CEO Schmidt, back when Google was much smaller than Apple. Again, this is about 15 years ago. And Jobs said to him, to uh, Google CEO, if you hire a single one of these people, that means war. And you need to realize this is back when Apple was much larger. It was the biggest firm in the world uh, at that time. And again, though, these these companies also have a lot of mutual reliance. Like Apple, you know, its iPhone relies on those sweet Google apps like YouTube and Google Maps and Google Search itself. And so they added all of their uh, employees to restricted hiring and do not call lists. And uh, Apple actually had an internal email to its HR department, you know, to their boring HR rep saying, uh, please add Google to your hands-off list. We recently agreed not to recruit from one another, which is a illegal conspiracy. So if you hear of any recruiting they're doing against us, please be sure to let us know. Emails from Google CEO Schmidt started in the subject line, in all caps, DO NOT FORWARD. <laughs> which is a great sign that lets you know that everything is above the board. That's nice. And Schmidt actually said um, to his HR person, we should do this communication verbally since I don't want to create a paper trail over which we can be sued later. And his HR head replies, makes sense to me to do orally. I agree. And this agreement, you know, it's hard to run a conspiracy among giant monopolists and, you know, like any marriage, there's rocky moments, you know. So at one point, um, some Google CEO, I guess, didn't get the memo. And so they tried to call an Apple engineer, like in violation of this agreement they had to, uh, you know, poach from one another. And so uh, Jobs said, you know, you've had some – we heard some one of your people tried to steal one of our people. Is our agreement still on? And Schmidt wrote to Jobs that recruiter will be fired within the hour. And Jobs responded with an email that was a smiley face, you know, the colon and then the closed parenthesis to make a fun. It's fun. The fun smiley face. So why am I telling you this story? It's to show you the power of these firms. Like, you know, economists like myself will tend to tell you that capitalism creates these nice competitive market settings where everyone's, you know, these small firms and they're competing and may the best man win. But the reality is these companies are smarter than that. And they know that they're huge employers, they're giant, powerful corporations. Corporate entities, and they've got power within the marketplace, as socialists have always pitched about. And as a result, they had the ability to move the market by secretly working together. And of course, it came out in court and there was a class action suit. You can read about it in the book and online. But I like that example because it really shows you the girth of these firms and just their sheer power and ability to steer what happens in that industry. It's pretty juicy and there's lots of other aspects to this. These firms have long, sleazy histories kind of like this. But that's sort of the basic economic landscape uh, of it. So maybe at this point, Uh, Could turn it over to Nicole to maybe connect all this uh, kind of awful, nightmarish market power over to the modern kind of crisis filled moment and see what the connections are. Thanks, Rob.
1: That was super interesting. And I think we can get back to some of that um, after I just wanted to talk for a couple minutes just to uh, kind of bring the focus of the conversation to what's happening right now. And in particular, um, how we see this kind of intersection between digital technology and this terrible pandemic um, and the power um, and challenge that's being you know the power of tech companies and governments and also the challenge of ch- trying to figure out how to use technology um, in a way that can you know help us to quell this horrible virus but also to protect our civil liberties. And I think there's a lot of really kind of big questions that are that are coming to the forefront And I guess I would just start with this kind of, um, you know, sometimes, and this is often how we um, get clarity, uh, we get clarity through moments of crisis. And I think that this kind of crisis that we're struggling with right now, both in the United States and globally, is really shining a light. Um, on our relationship with our digital devices and and by extension this kind of broader landscape that Rob sketched out of the power of kind of tech companies and and I'd also like to talk a little bit in addition the power of governments and um, you know using uh, in these kind of public-private partnerships with tech companies um, So many of you, you know, we're doing this talk digitally, right? Some of you may even be watching this talk on your smartphone. And certainly if we just look at app downloads as kind of one metric, we see that, you know, as this virus has kind of pushed us indoors, we've become even more attached to our digital devices, particularly our smartphones. You know, normally we would carry them everywhere everywhere. Now I, I walk around and I see almost everyone I see is looking at their smartphone. And, and there are a variety of reasons we can think about. Um, just in a very basic sense, right, our phones can give us access to crucial information. Uh, we might be obsessively scrolling through our news feed, looking at very morbid uh, statistics, which may not be very good for our mental health. But in some ways, our relationship to our phone can be really good for our mental health, um, particularly people who struggle with social social isolation, um, you know, their life, their phones have really become a lifeline to friends and family to kind of mitigate some of the effects of being stuck in your house, which can be psychologically devastating for a sizable, you know, portion of of the country. Um, So we think about this kind of tension, right, the the goods and bads of our, our phones. But I'd also like to draw uh, our kind of conversation to how our phones are being used um, and are being imagined as a, as a way to combat this virus. Um, and so if we if we look even at the, the global scale, we'll see dozens of countries around the world um, have already implemented a variety of strategies using our phones um, to kind of you know quell, the virus, to, you know, suppress outbreaks um, and to keep people informed. And, and the kind of range of these strategies um, goes from, you know, kind of uh, mild voluntary strategies to, you know, much more kind of intrusive strategies. So if we think about, um, you know, the case of Taiwan, for example, Taiwan was using people's um, smartphones to kind of create an electronic Fence right to to impose uh, quarantine um, on people. If they turned their phone off or walked out of a designated area, they might be visited by the authorities. Um, Poland was in the news for actually um, asking people people who were asked to self quarantine at home they had to check in regularly with a selfie, um, and if if they didn't, the police might knock on their door. I mean, we can also see how big data has has been brought to bear, right? In China, um, China partnered with Alibaba, which is, you know, the biggest tech company um, in that country and really utilized its, you know, its uh, impressive and massive uh, data capacities to create a city by city, um, you know, Alipay health code system uh, that uh, basically um, assigned everyone, um, a color based on personal city level and, uh, and country level directives. Um, and any place that you wanted to enter, you know, a train station, a residential building, a grocery store, a taxi, you'd have to actually scan your, you know, use your phone to scan the QR code to see if you passed. Uh, this kind of system is starting to um, be used less just because it's a very people-powered, onerous, um, highly expensive uh, model to run, but it's in place and can be used uh, and called up at any moment. Um, and then we see, you know, that's just a sort of sample of the kind of intrusive strategies. Of course, Israel was in the news, um, their, their social, uh, their secret service um, has actually Uh, been tracking people with personal contacts using location data who have tested positive for COVID um, and actually mapping out all of their networks. Um, So this is, uh, you know, something that many countries are toying with. And I think just to, you know, I want to talk about the United States in just a second, but I think what's really important for people to recognize is that um, all across the world, Different types of strategies are being developed, and we don't really have a lot of concrete uh, information or specifics or details about exactly um, what data is being collected, how it's being used, who is collecting the data. How it's being stored, um, and and what the strategies are going to look like moving forward, right? Um, and this is obviously a big conversation that we're having here in the United States, and there are a number of different strategies that. Are being used across the US. Um, Some of you may have heard uh, that Palantir, which is a data mining company known for being funded by the CIA, uh, known for its work with the NSA and ICE, um, has actually gotten a number of no compete contracts uh, with a variety of government agencies in the past couple months. Uh, Veterans Affairs just signed a contract with them, Uh, the Departments of Health and Human Services, uh, the Center for disease disease control, these agencies are all working with Palantir to uh, create this kind of new platform that actually leverages about 180 databases from the federal, state, local levels, and also brings in lots of personal data that we generate um, through our own attachment to our digital devices like our smartphones. But the biggest kind of thing that's in the news uh, recently uh, is this partnership between Apple and Google, where they are, uh, you know, sort of saying we are going to help with this um, effort at contact uh, tracing, which is essentially um, for if you're a little bit unfamiliar, contact tracing is an extremely old strategy to deal with disease outbreaks. Um, and it's primarily a people-centered strategy. If someone um, becomes ill Another individual who's trained actually in kind of networks and, and, and uh, interview techniques sits down or gets on the phone with that person and, and asks them, you know, in a very kind of uh, lengthy belabored interview to actually name all of the places and people that that individual has uh, been in touch with over some previous weeks uh, or, or even a month. So now the idea is that tech companies you know, can use our existing connection with our digital devices, particularly our smartphones, uh, to actually leverage this um, in in this strategy uh, to, you know, uh, make contact tracing much more widespread so that people can get back to work and reopen the economy. This all sounds great. Um, and, you know, Google and Apple are out, um, they actually just released a software update uh, where they basically, um, created a software tool, an application programming uh, interface to allow both Android and iPhones to communicate with each other um, through Bluetooth. Basically, um, it enables uh, your phone, if I have an iPhone and I walk by someone who has an Android phone, uh, it allows our phones to do a little Bluetooth handshake and they'll, uh, uh, you know. Exchange um, you know, a kind of uh, numerical random ID so that later, you know if if, say, I live in Massachusetts and Massachusetts creates an app uh, that uses this uh, this new API, uh, and I download the app. Voluntarily and and in theory, everyone else around me in my state uh, should download the app. Uh, then, if if I find out I'm sick and I and I put that into the app, that information uh, it will a- automatically um, notify everyone who I have come into contact with that you have come into contact. And of course, my information would be anonymized. In theory, um, you know. And and everyone else would have just this sort of notification, hey, you have come into contact with someone with COVID. It's time to panic uh, <laughs> or stay home, get a test, et cetera. So this is, I think, an interesting moment, right? Those are some very specific things that are happening. But I think it's an interesting moment because the kind of landscape that Rob um, was, was sketching out for you. Um, has drawn a lot of criticism. And, uh, you know, there's been an increasing push both from the right and the left uh, to really start reining in uh, big tech. But in this moment, uh, there's been a kind of rosy glow that's attached to tech companies who are, you know, s- sort of setting themselves up uh, to to help us get through this crisis. Um, and I think that this is interesting um, because it can... I think that there is a genuine uh, sort of emphasis on privacy in this kind of new Bluetooth technology that's being developed, and we can talk about the efficacy of that in a moment. Um, but I think it shouldn't distract us from uh, this broader question about, you know, public health and And privacy, right? Um, and a number of sort of tech ethicists and others are really kind of, you know, raising the alarm that right now, you know, maybe it's this sort of innocent, voluntary, Let's download these Bluetooth-enabled apps. Uh, But this is really opening the door to a kind of broader level of surveillance um, in the name of public health. And here I think it's important, and Rob, I think your contribution was was very useful here, um, to to ask these kind of questions, uh, but also not to make too large of a distinction between the types of surveillance that we're talking about developing in the moment and the broader surveillance landscape that's emerged over uh, the past decade. I mean, in the most basic sense, right, the reason why governments and companies are able to kind of use our phones as a tool uh, to potentially um, fight COVID is because these are already uh, surveillance devices, right? They're built with surveillance in mind. And more than that, and here we can think about this sociologically, we already have established these very, um, you know, intense relationships with our digital devices, right? The norms and behaviors uh, that would encourage taking a selfie uh, to to check in or to self-monitor with a type of app or to You know, report your health conditions uh, to your phone, right? These kinds of norms and behaviors have already been established. So, governments and companies are able to kind of piggyback onto those uh, to create this new strategy uh, moving forward. But I think that we should be very cautious about this. And obviously, I'm not the only person um, talking about this. In fact, There's a bill being discussed in Congress right now, uh, which is called the Public Health Emergency Privacy Act, which I think is really interesting. Um, The bill is great. It doesn't really talk about um, enforcement uh, or actually what the kind of penalties will be for companies uh, if this bill passed. uh, You know, I should back up a little bit there. The bill is basically saying no data Right, that's being generated for the purposes of trying to quell the COVID pandemic using these kind of new technologies uh, should be shared with advertisers or third parties. Unfortunately, of course, if you've been following the news, North Dakota was just in the news uh, because their state app, um, a privacy company actually looked at the app and it was sharing people's data with third party providers, including Google. But in theory, The idea is apps moving forward and technology moving forward, uh, that companies would not be able to use this data for advertising or other nefarious purposes. And I think that this is something interesting. I'll kind of wrap up here so that we can go back and forth a little. Um, But if we think about the kind of environment and the surveillance environment that emerged after 9-11 and the And the kind of lack of conversation about the intense surveillance that was initiated in response to that event. I think that this bill is, is heartening, actually. I think that there is a potential in this moment that, you know, this light is kind of being uh, shined on our relationship with our digital devices and by extension, our relationship with these big tech companies and governments, I think that there is actually a moment to kind of for progressives to interject and say, yes, obviously we want to use technology to help, you know, get this virus under control, but we want to do it in a way that is democratic and protects our privacy and protects our civil liberties. So how do we actually, you know, find a middle ground. And I think now is is a really important moment to be having those conversations, not a month or six months down the road. So Rob, um, I guess in this part of the conversation, we're supposed to, uh, you know, transition to more of a conversation. So I have lots of things I could sort of ask you about your uh, talk, but I'll let you kind of get in there.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Nicole. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I think that Especially that point right at the conclusion there. Like it, technology is needed to fight this disease, especially because if, as we all are painfully aware, we missed our chance to get in front of this. Epidemic, right? Like you know, we could have done you know the Korean route or you know even the Chinese route of at least you know early testing, swamping breakouts with contact tracing, uh, as Nicole was describing, which is like the classic d- disease fighting technique. That's what we did with the last Ebola breakouts. I mean, that's an old epidemiological technique. Well, now that this the chance to get in front of the disease has been lost, and it's just tr- being transmitted through the population now, out from cities into more rural areas at the moment, especially with a lot of the states gradually at different paces but still reopening uh, like the technology is going to be essential but it's scary because these firms have a long history now of using the GPS chips on our phone and the Bluetooth uh, and Wi-Fi handshakes that these uh, applications—not just your phone itself, but different apps—are making very frequently uh, on these different operating systems. I think it's given people—I mean, I definitely wouldn't say paranoia because we are being tracked—but I think it's made people um, maybe cynicism is a better word. Um, like if you talk to younger people now, even people you know, not even like you know, like Gen, you know, Gen Zers, but just younger people in general, they tend to say yes. Uh, privacy is dead. We've lost our privacy. It's a lost cause. They know everything we do. I mean, they have a point, of course, because of the extent of the tracing and tracking these firms do. And we know it's real. I mean, these firms are happily selling this data or making it available in different commercial terms. So I, I think it's a thing where we could have a problem where people are resistant to using the Positive potential of the you know surveillance abilities on these yeah basically little uh, phone bugs that we keep in our pockets and purses all the time. I'm I'm concerned that there will be limited adoption of yet yeah, this new uh, Apple and Google cross operating system app, which is very unusual for them for two reasons. First, of course, was that they're willing to work together at all. These firms very frequently, they fight over turf by making their applications and software purposefully not compatible and not Mm -hmm. sharing what they call the uh, APIs, which Nicole mentioned, the uh, application programming interfaces that let a game or app work on your phone's operating system or your computer's OS, you know, so this Mm -hmm. shows they could do it. They just don't want to because this is part of how they protect their own little monopoly or oligopoly sphere of um, the tech sector. But it's interesting also because the other thing, um, just having kept up uh, casually with this uh, new app, this new uh, COVID-19 tracking app, is that the firms also publicly released much of the code in the app itself because I think partially they recognize there's real skepticism that, A, you're not just going to use this to track me further more than you already do, and above all, you're not going to use this to, as in the case of North Dakota that Nicole mentioned, actually turn out to be making this data available to some sleazy third-party whomever who's profiting off our uh, desperate attempts to recover from this national crisis. I do remember one thing though, Nicole, that I read just in some of the coverage of that uh, new app in the, um, the Wall Street Journal. They were uh, mentioning that um, that release of the code and the, as I recall, the idea was that those unique IDs that are created from those Bluetooth handshakes, which could let you know if you've been exposed to someone who turns out through a test later to have COVID-19, that's, that data is supposed to be stored on your particular Android or iPhone, right? It doesn't go to the usual huge data centers and cloud uh, operations of these uh, tech companies. Do I remember that right? And is that actually a useful thing or does that make a meaningful – is that a meaningful way of limiting how much privacy we're surrendering for that app? That might be um, something you could speak to. So,
1: the API or the software tool that's been released, it's like this idea that um, you know Google and Apple will, will make it possible for other governments and companies to build their own apps and and make sure it's compatible, provided it, um, you know, follow some certain rules. And I think that this idea of, you know, for example, storing storing these IDs or this kind of data locally on phones, this could potentially be a good thing. But as you mentioned earlier, Rob, there's been a lot of conversation about how effective these uh, you know strategies actually are for a number of different reasons. Um, and and that, the ineffectiveness could actually open the door, I think, to more invasive kind of tracking, Mm -hmm. right? This idea that we can do it. So why are they ineffective? Well, the first thing is simply that um, Bluetooth is uh, not a very precise kind of technology, right? Um, It can track, uh, you know, it might be saying I came into contact with someone who lives in the apartment next door to me, right? Right. Or uh, it might not actually, it might be showing that I, you know, spent 15 minutes with someone, but they were actually not even close enough to propose a risk to me getting sick. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different questions of efficacy um, just in sort of the way the technology works. So a lot of public health care professionals in particular are really raising alarms saying, hey, this is not a replacement for people powered contact tracing. And, you know, it requires people to be able to go to the doctor right? Not to be afraid of a hospital bill, um, to be able to actually have access to a test. Um, and and it requires people to voluntarily agree to download the app, right? And to actually, um, you know, report that they've been uh, actually struck and ill, which is a big question because it relies on people to trust both these tech companies with their data and, you know, the governments that are partnering, right, to create these new apps. And this trust is not, uh, it's not there. Uh, and the evidence that we see so far in countries, not just the United States, but in countries around the world, is that people are not downloading these apps. Uh, and uh, the reason why, as you say, um, is because people don't have a lot of trust, Um there was a study that was reported um, in the Financial Times that says less than half of Americans would be willing to download a contact tracing app. Hmm. Uh, less than a third would be willing to um, submit some more detailed biometric uh, information, or, for example, um, location tracking information, uh, you know, which I think is interesting because that to me indicates that people are not aware of the level of surveillance that they're already being exposed to by using their smartphones every day. Um, But in order for something like a contact tracing app to work, you need uh, an enormous, uh, you know, amount of people using it, right? You need more than half of the population at a minimum to actually be using it and to be willing to report their information. So I think that there's a kind of interesting intersection between the kind of you know technical, but also the social limitations of relying on this kind of you know, technologically driven strategy, uh, which are worth, you know, emphasizing.
0: That's really interesting. It's yeah. It sort of sounds like, uh, like the tech firms, and also <clears throat> the well-known, you know, uh, government-driven surveillance programs, all the way up to Prism, you know, the really notorious ones. They, I I wonder if that has made Americans, if that's worn out their tracking goodwill. Like I wonder if we hadn't had, you know, the Snowden revelations of the tracking and the gradual drip of learning exactly how much uh, the phone operators and the software creators know about us. I wonder if people would be more willing to. Uh, take these steps and download these apps and report their health information. If they weren't already, sort of. Ugh, these guys know too much about me already. I don't want to give them any more. Now, like you said, that's kind of goofy because they know so much about us. Like they know all of the things they can use to manipulate us and you know sell our data off and so on. The one positive now, the one positive thing that could be done by tracking us. People don't want to accept it because they're maybe fed up or just very cynical uh, or wary about these firms. That's kind of an interesting liability there.
1: Yeah, it's huge. I mean, and and we can hardly, you know, expect anything different. It's seemingly daily, right? There's an article about, you know, Amazon said that, you know, the the Alexa was not listening and storing our data all the time. Oh, oh no, it actually is, right? And like uh, Google is still tracking you, even if you turn off your, you know, location uh, tracking on your phone, it's still tracking you through your advertising ID connected to your phone or through apps that use, you know, Google's, uh, you know, architecture, right? So we're constantly being bombarded uh, data breaches, right? constantly. So people are being bombarded with information uh, that shows that tech companies are not very good at telling us the truth or keeping our data safe. But it's this weird kind of juxtaposition because we continue to use all of this technology because it's essential to sort of modern social, economic, and political life, right? As you said earlier, Rob, it's not like, yeah, maybe I don't use Facebook I don't use Twitter very much, um, but I use Google constantly, right? I use Amazon, even though I know I shouldn't, you know, it's sometimes necessary to use it. So it becomes this kind of weird situation where we can feel powerless, right? It's like, how do we actually, I know I don't trust these institutions, um, but I I rely on them. And and so how do I actually, you know, move forward in a way that makes me feel like I have some agency with, you know, in relationship to this technology that I'm using all the time and that I actually get a lot of good things from, right? Um, I don't think we should be so quick to, you know, Uh, be pushing strategies of, well, just get rid of your phone or just don't use the internet, right? (laughs) I find those kinds of arguments, uh, fine. If you don't want to use it, that's fine. If that's part of your, how, you know, if that's like a policy for your family, if it makes you feel better, Totally fine, um, but if we're thinking about it as, uh, you know, a societal level strategy, if all of the people who have a problem with these tech companies take themselves out, if they can even do that, but let's just say hypothetically you take yourself out of the conversation by by abstaining, that just leaves the people who cannot remove themselves from this relationship with technology and the tech companies left to kind of set the rules. Uh, and 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 determine the landscape. So I think it's really important to, you know, particularly from the left, right, to to come up with ways to actually use technology in a way uh, that that's helping us uh, and you know and and emphasizing what we need in in terms of you know both this particular present crisis, but also our need for relationships with technology that are more democratic, broadly speaking.
0: That's great. That makes a lot of sense. And It may be worth mentioning just briefly because there are still some folks who have I wouldn't say naive views about the tracking issue, but who are maybe just not quite as aware of the extent of it. One great place you can turn, but besides our excellent books, which you should buy several copies of for your families, is uh, uh Yasha Levine's great book, Surveillance Valley, which I steal from all the time. People should check that out just because of the extremely intense research he did for that. But he makes the point, like these firms, they know things about you that we don't tell like our best friends. Like, you know, they know when you get laid. They can easily see your GPS chips and you go to some other Place with a different phone. That's weird. And then you leave, and they know when you then go to the Planned Parenthood to deal with the ramifications of your date. Like they're able, like the GPS chips, unlike Wi-Fi, have a fairly uh, narrow physical range of locating you. Like that technology has come a long way. And we might throw in too, along with a lot of the technology in your phone, we should mention that this tech fundamentally doesn't come. You know, from a research point of view, it doesn't come from the companies. Most of this stuff was developed by the Pentagon, by the university system, a lot of it during the Cold War era, mostly with public tax funds, because it's difficult doing research. Who knows when you'll discover something, let alone something that makes money. So it's often the thing that is more reasonable to expect the universities and other government bodies to do because they aren't under near term Wall Street share price pressure to produce you know, results and to be profitable or do share buybacks. So so it's not sensible to expect those firms to do the basic R and D. I mean, many people know that's where the internet comes from. It was originally DARPAnet because it was developed by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration, which is the Pentagon's you know, military uh, research arm. So I might just throw that in briefly. The first thing that these firms and their defenders want to refer to is, well, you can trash these firms and their power mongering and their conspiracy, they're conspiring against their workforces and they're tracking us at every term. They'll say, well, you can dump on them for that. But they did invent this very useful technology, which, as we were just saying, is now difficult to do without. But the fact is, it's mostly developed publicly. These firms then turn it into a fun app that you can put on your phone, and there's real work and research that goes into that. But that fundamental R&D that these firms used to track our every waking moment. Should mention that actually us and our parents' generation like paid for the development of that tech in reality. You can read more about that in our books also. But something else you were talking about, Nicole, is kind of interesting, just the way these firms are behaving in this environment in general. It, it's kind of interesting. Like, it's like the firms are of two minds about how to adapt to the COVID crisis, you know, because on the one hand, you know, it's a huge bonanza for them. I mean, everyone's been covering how the firms are, you know, the, these big t- platform companies. They're, revenues are just still pointed right up at a time when the economy is probably going to contract in the double digits of percentages, which is a very large disaster. And unless we get a UBI or a better bailout, then we could be looking at a real depression because of this. It's a macroeconomic disaster that's going to reach down to so many of our lives, as many of the listeners will already know, obviously. But these firms' revenue and use hours and user engagement numbers are all pointed fairly strongly upward. And big surprise, like the luckier among us during this crisis are stuck in quarantine. And our problem is stir craziness and loneliness and missing people and not being able to have a healthier lifestyle. Of course, we should realize we obviously we are the privileged one through this. Many people are stocking grocery shelves and working in slaughterhouses so the rest of us can make our paranoid grocery store trips and still come home with tasty food to eat in our apartments that we're just bored with could be a lot worse, you know? So on the one hand, the firms are doing really well with this, but you can see also that they're eager um, not to be seen as taking advantage of the crisis. So an example I like to point to is like YouTube right now. You may have heard of YouTube, which obviously Google bought years and years ago and it's a core part of the firm now. Well, YouTube has this very justifiable reputation these days of steering people toward fringy content to the extent that you're interested um, in like news or current events type of YouTube programming, the algorithm, the recommendation or up next uh, function on YouTube is one of the most important parts of that website. According to Google, it drives almost half of the viewing hours on that platform. It ends up in because Google is so universally used, global monopoly video platform, 65 years of video are uploaded to that thing every day. Think about that until you go insane, that's your homework for tonight. But you take a look, like Google very typically, because it wants to maximize viewer time, it wants to steer you toward weirder, fringier content that keeps you on the site and keeps you watching ads. Obviously that's the core of their business model for YouTube. So it tends to steer you toward flat earther stuff and alt-right conspiracies and so on. And they've been trying at least a little bit to finally devote some resources to policing their platform and cleaning that stuff up. But now if you go to YouTube, the very front thing on it, and Often, like a little separate pop up screen, is the CDC, like the boring Centers for Disease Control. Suddenly, that's the sexy content that YouTube's putting at the top of its incredibly valuable real estate. They want to be seen as being, at least in the public perception, as being part of the solution here and steering you toward the CDC's, you know, their modest guidelines and the administration has. Twisted that agency's arm a lot and is hurting its credibility, but it is what we have as far as a scientifically informed public health body. And for YouTube to be steering people toward that instead of Alex Jonesy content is a real meaningful change for that firm. Like there is billions of dollars uh, that Google is sacrificing by letting that take up some YouTube space. But they want to be seen as being on the positive side for this. And other firms like Amazon are trying to be part of that, too. But even now, like Facebook completely let that ridiculous pandemic documentary about how COVID-19 is actually developed by the Chinese and their evil communist plan to destroy us all. So even now, when they're trying to be on their best behavior, there's a lot of limits to it. And it just kind of I feel like we're seeing the profit motive pull these firms in different directions because of the depth of this crisis, you know.
1: Yeah. I think I, I would just like to um, circle back to add something to your point, Rob, about how, you know, the kind of stories that we hear about Silicon Valley emphasize these kind of entrepreneurial tech cowboys who, you know, are genius. They're just, they're just geniuses who create, you know, and they're in this like unbelievable technology. And, you know, some of those guys are incredibly smart and gals, although it is a very male dominated world. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation. Indeed. Um, but I would like to add to that, you know, so this, this idea that the, the reality of that is, in you know, years, decades of publicly funded research, much of it occurring at universities, paid for by taxpayers. But if we look at the kind of business model of these, um, of these companies, yes, they rely on this kind of technology that's been kind of collective. It's part of our kind of collective wealth. Um, but we can broaden col- this idea of collective wealth, right? To think about these companies also rely on all of our Data, right, that we generate, whether it's content uh, that we post or the data that we generate by carrying our phone with us everywhere, all of the kind of emails and videos and photos and, you know, web crawls. And this intense relationship that we have with our phones creates this kind of unimaginable data trail um, that is used, uh, access to this data, right, is is sold. That's the sort of primary uh, business strategy for, particularly for Facebook and Google, um, and also third-party data brokers. So when we think about out, um you know there's a listener who asked to uh to comment on this all right, you know this question of you know Facebook and Google one of the reasons why they've kind of flown under the radar until the last few years is that um they offer a service that's nominally free right so and it's incredible. I can use Google Suite to make a resume, to uh, collectively edit a document with a group of other people, not, you know, obviously to search the web, to have an endless, you know, kind of, I can I can use my Gmail account as a kind of file service, right? I never run out of space. All of these kind of amazing uh, services are nominally free, right? But I think it's important to actually think about this kind of deeper exchange, right? And, a, and, and at the root of this exchange for much of these tech companies is this kind of unpaid work uh, that each of us is doing, right, in the kind of data that we're generating. And that is appropriated and hoarded, right, and stored and used in ways that we, we don't really have a clear sense, right? There's a real lack of transparency. So when we think about this relationship of what makes these tech companies work, right, what makes them go And what makes them so incredibly profitable, as you were talking about earlier, Rob, it's partly that they've been able to, you know, capitalize on all of this publicly funded uh, research and innovations, um, but also that they have access to all of our unpaid work, right? They have a small... You know, group of paid workers and all the rest of us, this kind of sea of users who are constantly generating our own data that they subsist on. So this kind of when we have this understanding of their business model, I think it should push us to actually be more aggressive in our demands for control over this technology. Right. And to think about, all right, well, how do we actually make this technology work for us in a way that's I'm not just okay with, okay, I get to use Facebook for, for free or I get to use Google for free. I would argue that it's not an equal exchange, actually, that they're getting a lot more out of the equation. And particularly when we think about how things are going to evolve in the next, you know, five to ten years. Well, this crisis is really opening the door for tech companies because they can say, well, hey, look, you might not be able to go to school. We can help you, you know, learn at home and it'll be just as good. We can get rid of who needs teachers, right? We can just point all of your kids to, to, to websites or, you know, you don't need to go to the grocery store or take public transportation, just stay home and we'll have things delivered to you, right? So these kinds of trends are very powerful and potentially very profitable for tech companies. So I think it's really important in this moment to kind of push back against that.
0: That's a great point. Sheesh. Actually, that's a really good transition, too. This might be, uh, before we get to uh, a bunch of Q&A, uh, this might be a good point maybe to uh, talk about what we think should be done uh, to deal with this sector, because obviously you know, the scale of the issue here is uh, pretty clear to increasingly large numbers of um, you know, not even particularly politically connected people. Um, So the issue of what to do is uh, pretty interesting. And of course, there are a lot of like near-term reformist moves that can be done. Uh, You don't see a lot of it happening in the US. Uh, It's a very, you know, famously capitalist society with limited, uh, you know, government interference in the marketplace, at least in this modern neoliberal period, as they say. But if we look overseas, like the European Union, it's interesting because they are actively uh, going after these firms in a number of ways with real teeth, at least compared to what's happening uh, in the US. So, For example, there's that general data protection regulation uh, that came out of the European Union's competition bodies. And there, there are like fairly material limitations on what these giant platform firms can do with our data. And mainly applies to European, of course, users of these platforms of whom there are you know hundreds of millions. So it's still pretty important. And they include things like uh, the data, plat- the data companies have to keep that data like locally, like within a country or a group of countries where the users are located. They can't you know, pull it all back to America and back it up three times over and keep it forever. Uh, they have to honor, People's desire to erase themselves or some content related to them from the net, and also uh, in particular going after way these firms of utterly avoid paying taxes, which is, you know, of course, you know, anyone on the left uh, or just independent-minded is familiar with how little taxes these firms pay, and how the series of Republican tax cuts over the last forty years, from Reagan through Bush to Trump, have reduced the, te- the tax burden on these firms, and that last tax bill, especially giving firms a one-time super 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 low tax rate to bring in all their overseas holdings back when, you know, Apple and Google were sitting on tens of billions of dollars in overseas profit that they were just waiting for an opportunity to bring back with low taxes. It is especially offensive because, of course, these are firms who, as we were saying, uh, most of their core tech comes from tax funded public research at universities or national research labs or the military. So it's kind of especially obnoxious how much these firms are able to avoid their taxation. The EU has been meaningfully going after these firms' ability to shift all their revenue to low tax areas and keep all their costs in high tax areas and manipulate their tax bill that way. So there are near-term things that can be done, but maybe perhaps looking just slightly further down the road as far as what we might ultimately want to do with these firms. Uh, People talk about nationalizing Amazon or treating Google as a utility. Uh, The Warren and Sanders campaigns, God bless them. Uh, We're often referring to this, so, you know, positive legacy we can carry forward, you know. But in particular, we could talk about socializing these platforms we should remember you know traditionally socialism is kind of refers to worker control of the means of production. When you go to work, you, management doesn't just tell you what to do. Like you work with your coworkers, you have access to the information that management has and you together decide how to run the business and what you're going to do and how you're going to work with other related industries that you articulate with that user, that worker control more than just straight nationalization is kind of the core of it. And so obviously, you know, a, a government move could be part of socializing these industries industries if it leads to workforce control over those platforms. And there's a lot to say about that. But one thing to connect with what Nicole said a moment ago is we should realize we are part of the workforce of these firms on the grounds that it's our content that these firms use as the, the attraction to their platforms. YouTube wouldn't be attractive to users, to its billions of users, if it wasn't for all of us making fun video content such as this to attract people to the platform. And then of course, you know, more use more viewers on the platform attract more video creators, and that's that positive feedback cycle that manifests uh, the network effect in online video. Like it's our work that creates that video. It's our website that Google search indexes. It's our goofy cat videos that Facebook uh, organizes. So we represent a very meaningful part of that workforce. So just the kind of upshot of that in my mind, is if we're thinking about socializing these firms, the first thing we should realize is it can begin with user organization as well as trying to organize these workers themselves, which of course is a very historically challenging uh, project and people are organizing in tech right now. And we've seen real strides happening with Google walkouts. Amazon's having walkouts over COVID-19 safety in these giant uh, warehouses that all of our fun products are coming from. So looking forward, supporting those organizing efforts is good, but I feel like our final goal should be some form of real worker control. If we leave these firms just regulated, like in the 30s in the New Deal, they'll wait until people are politically disconnected or cynical and they'll get rid of those regulations just like they did last time. But it's something we can be thinking about as far as uh, how we would like to move forward or what we should do uh, with these platforms. And Nicole, maybe uh, I'm sure you have some ideas about that too.
1: Yeah, Rob, I think... um... The main thing I would want to emphasize is that, you know, in these conversations about what is to be done, um, I think it's, you know, we're seeing a lot of ideas being thrown out there. And I think that this is a really positive thing, right? Because um, until recently, there was this, this kind of sense that, you know, uh, what tech companies are creating is so complicated; it's beyond our control. Or these software engineers are so much smarter than us, so that we can't really, you know, tell them what to do. It's this kind of story that's cultivated um, and popularized, you know, from Silicon Valley itself because it's a very convenient kind of worldview. So the fact that a lot more people now are joining the conversation and saying, "No, actually, we have our own ideas about." how we want technology uh, to be used, I think is really positive. Um, And so it needs to be a democratic conversation. I talk about um, some potential strategies in my book, but I think the important thing um, is to really, uh, you know, encourage everyone to get involved in the conversation. And this is a this is an old, um, kind of, um, argument that's been made by radical scientists for a long time, right? This idea that, uh, we shouldn't put scientists or software engineers up, uh, you know, on a pedestal. Um, they are, they live in society, uh, and we can all talk about technology because it impacts all of us, right? So we can make demands of it, even if we don't a hundred percent understand, um, you know, how these algorithms work. And that's, you know, I, I was thinking about this because, uh, I cool. One of the viewers asked a question about algorithms. Uh, she said, "Can you speak to how algorithms are framed as neutral things that just make mistakes um, when they are developed and implemented uh, with very clear value systems, and, th- and thus shift responsibility?" I think this is a really important and key point to raise. Um, you know, that we kind of throw that word out there, algorithm. It's like, and then it's it's like magic, right? We're like, "Well, the algorithm, you know, <laughs> told me to do it." when um, we almost imagine we make this shortcut when we say, well, the computer created the algorithm, right? As if it's generated um, with no people um, involved in the process, right? An algorithm is just a very precise set of instructions to uh, you know accomplish some kind of task, whether it's to uh, calculate some numbers uh, or to figure out, you know, how far this Uber driver took you and how much that person should be paid, right? An algorithm is simply a set of instructions. And it's an ins- a set of instructions uh, that is written by a person, right? Um, and and so this is an obvious point. Um, and 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 a point that, like, yes, we get it, but it's easily forgotten because the the kind of stories that are being told about how we should use technology to make society better uh, put the kind of technology first and this idea that algorithms are driving us in some direction, right? It's very easy to take people out of the equation. Um, So, for example, when an algorithm is used to prevent someone from getting parole or to prevent someone from getting a job or to prevent someone from getting home health care right from from their state right you can uh then say well you know uh it's math it has to be right uh when in reality um, you know, it's people who are writing these algorithms and using uh, existing uh, data, right, and shaping the kind of trade-offs, right, you, with their own kind of biases, right? Uh, and so they're front and center. And at the same time, uh, you know, whether it's state governments or, or jails uh, or companies, right? Uh, it's very convenient for them to to place the blame on on the algorithm without having to take responsibility for for what actually uh, they're using those algorithms for. So I think this is a great question, and it's just important to keep in mind that algorithms are written by people, um and we can and we can do whatever we want with them. right? So if someone, Uh, Or some institution is saying, well, you know, it's, it's math. It has to, it has to be Uh, just, I would encourage people to push back against that and say, you know, it was an instruction sheet and it was written by a person.
0: That's great. And that's, um, a very helpful uh, viewer question. And by the way, folks, uh, please do keep your uh, questions coming. Uh, we're seeing those on the send, and our uh, producer is sharing those uh, with us. And that's a, a really good one. Yeah, that's as Nicole was just saying, like that's a, a really important um, deflection that uh, the platforms have. Is anything that goes wrong with our platforms or any ugly output that they produce, and there's a lot of it, they'll immediately say, well, it's an algorithm. It's a a mathematical formula. And in general, if you complain about these things at all, the amount of patronizing condescension that people will give you, like, oh, liberals are triggered by math. They don't like math. They're crazy. Well, it's not just an equation like five plus five is 10. It's like a big process, a mathematical process, and it does have human-created goals that are going to as nicole was saying like shape what the out- output of it is and it's another fantastic book since i can't stop recommending books um i can't right now remember the author's name uh it's a fantastic incredibly readable book weapons of math destruction well and that's you- Kathy o'neill's book that's it o'neill yeah. thank you yeah so she good. actually
1: we have a great interview with her uh in jacobin if people want to look her up and fantastic. yeah i d- definitely recommend her book Absolutely. it's awesome
0: I will say it is the most readable book about math that I have ever read. It's, <laughs> in, I inhaled that book in like a day and a half. It's just very juicy. She doesn't take you through, yeah, the mathematical guts of these things. It's about how they're used. And it's really interesting. And that Jacobin interview is a very nice uh, summary of it. But I remember she says in the book, and this is from memory, she says, people of privilege big accounts people with money they get processed by people their applications for loans their you know personal information gets held by people it's us in the masses who are processed by these machine algorithms there are real class dimensions to this, you know, and it's interesting also because again, uh, the firms will say that these are you know algorithmic processes, so it's just a scientific process. We play no role in it. We should realize even again just the basic business record. Again, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal. When business people are open with each other, that's where the real dirt comes out. So uh, for a while, like uh, well, I like, uh, take Google again. Again, the 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 company that has the best reputation still even out of all these tech platforms. Um, They had an issue, and this sort of came up primarily in the European Union, but now with their, at least on hold, uh, antitrust investigations in the U.S., we will probably uh, hear some more of these. Google uh, is in trouble because they have, you know, they've been found to be actively downranking online resources, you know, like in their Google search rankings, downranking online resources that compete with Google's own business centers. And the big one, of course, is online shopping and price comparison. Like that's a way that Google tries to compete partially with Amazon and have its own market niche is not so much, you know, for the ordering and fulfillment of online retail, which obviously Amazon is totally uh, dominating. But the price, Comparison when you're looking to get a flight or a hotel or you know a new computer or something, you can Google it and look at prices and it's a nice user-friendly typical Google uh, user interface. There, uh, what they found was there was a period where um, some Google competitor uh, was offering a very you know user-friendly price comparison function, and if you put into Google search price comparison service, this service would pop up like second or third on the listing. And then after a few weeks, suddenly it's on page like 14 of Google's search results, which is enough to totally kill a business's uh, Google search presence, you know, and it gradually came out. And again, we have this just from friendly business reporting that, uh, uh, you know, why did that downranking happen? Well, Larry, referring, of course, to Larry Page, one of the two people who developed the original Google search algorithm, Larry thought product should get more exposure. So product there, of course, referring to Google's own comparison shopping results service, and he wanted it to get more exposure, meaning at the expense of that competitor. So they go from being search result three to being search results 83 <laughs> Like that goes to show, like these algorithms, you know, they may have like a mathematical core so you can get the most relevant search results. Like Google has an interest in having good search results up to the point of being the dominant go to search engine. But as soon as it starts to really take a bite out of one of its emerging new profit centers, suddenly they'll downrank it to Kingdom Come. And they've downranked other like leftist and other, you know, and like more far right news sources as well. So while there's clearly a mathematical core to these processes, there's also a very real capitalist institutional incentive to smush and downrank results if they're inconvenient to us. But again, because it's an opaque process, as was said, and we rely on these firms so much, if you aren't keeping up with the business news about it, you'll never hear about these uh, sleazy manipulations of those algorithms. So you can't hide behind math, Silicon Valley. It's not going to work. <laughs> well, this
1: is gr- here's another good question, Rob. Yeah. Um, one viewer asked, are we at a tipping point in terms of the public perceptions of these companies, uh, or will they be able to recover their lost credibility? Um, this, I think, is a really interesting question, and I, I don't necessarily uh, have an answer to it. I think it uh, it's a little weird, because, you know, if you had asked me... Um, 3 months ago I would have had a clear kind of uh answer in this and I would have said you know that the public criticism and and appetite for regulation for regulating tech companies um, is is reaching a kind of critical mass um, to the point where you know even in the United States, um, you know there'll be some real moves to to actually implement some concrete and meaningful uh, regulations because at this moment, you know these these companies are essentially regulating themselves, and there are very few, um, hard and fast laws to limit um, how they make money. So if we think about something just as simple as all the location data that we generate and is scooped up by not just Google and Facebook, but all of these, you know, third party um, apps and and location data brokers, there's no law against uh Hoarding, scraping, selling this type of data, right? You're allowed to do it. Um, and companies essentially regulate themselves um, so that they, they don't draw attention to their activities uh, and potentially spark kind of broader uh, regulation. But as we can see, that doesn't really work. But now, you know, in this moment, three months later, uh, where we've become more reliant on, on tech than ever before, I think it could really we're kind of on a knife's edge. I think it could really go either way. Um there may be a sense that you know we don't we're so reliant on this technology that we don't want to disrupt it by tamping down these these companies or I think that there's there's a sort of potential for an awakening where people Take that awareness, right? Take that recognition of how reliant upon this technology we are, um and actually, you know push even harder uh, for regulation. So I feel like it really could go uh, either way, and it really kind of depends on the kind of you know how the conversation evolves and how you know people push. You made this great point in your book, Rob, about you know the issue of net neutrality um and how much it mattered, uh, you know, that millions of people actually submitted comments. Um, to 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 you know support um, net neutrality. So I think you know it matters uh, you know what direction we push, but it really could go at, at any go go either way, I think at
0: this point. Indeed. And I think you can tell, like, I think the best way to confirm what Nicole just said is that the companies clearly are behaving in a way where as if as if they recognize that um, the amount of money these firms are pouring into lobbying now is completely goofy, like back in the early days of these Companies, total bipartisan consensus that they're great. Um, you know, Microsoft may have pushed the lines, but it gives us this valuable technology, and Google and Facebook, and it's free, and Amazon's so convenient. There's a long time when these companies could do no wrong in the public eye. Like that era has passed. Like these companies are part of the overall vague American cynical skepticism of powerful institutions, and rightly so, after all. But I think they realize that you know, regardless of exactly how this pandemic plays out. And I guess we're about to see if we're due for a second wave or not as the states reopen. So uh, time will tell as we're all uh, sadly uh, very, very aware of. But the way these companies act, I think, shows you like they see that they are vulnerable and they absolutely could be very seriously uh, regulated. And we have a great question here. Uh, Again, one more uh, listener question. Uh, Where do you think policy can help curb or break up the power and profits that tech is acquiring? On our labor, well, we mentioned earlier some of the things that the EU is doing to its, you know, modest credit. I think the very first step is getting rid of the incredibly favorable tax position of these firms, partially because they're big global operations, which gives you a large amount of tools uh, for tax sheltering and obscuring what your actual income is, and taking revenue in one country and putting all your uh, costs in another. Like that's one thing. And we mentioned net neutrality also. I mean, you know, net neutrality actually is something to. Consider. I do have a chapter on that in the book, but it's like we should remember that because that was a left wing, a real left wing victory. And we don't have like tons of those. And we had it for, you know, about three years or so uh, from the Obama era FCC uh, Title II decision all the way over until uh, uh, Trump's lousy uh, corporate. Hand puppet FCC appointees, or you know, uh, the Republican appointees on the FCC, undid it. Like that was a real significant step. Net neutrality just refers to uh, the ability of uh, telecom firms to steer you toward or away different. uh, online content, and in particular to make it stream faster or slower, depending on whether they make a deal with your local telecom cable monopolist that brings you your broadband, you know, like that's a meaningful victory we should try to bring back. I thought that was favorable. The big thing that's debated, and I wrote a little bit about this for Dollars and Cents on uh, their most uh, next most recent issue, their January, February issue, uh, was like, what about breaking these firms up? That might be something. So again, putting aside our our longer term goal to socialize tech is it valuable to break up the firms? And Microsoft was almost broken up in the 90s until George W. Bush came in and decided they his Justice Department wouldn't pursue that. But it almost happened. And the idea was to break them up into pieces, basically. Like when we broke up AT&T in the 1980s or Standard Oil in the 1910s, you break them up into units. So like Microsoft has its operating system that makes stupid windows for our PCs to run on. And it has its applications business, you know, like the whole office suite of software, like Word and Excel. So we're going to split those up into two big firms. Or now, for example, the Warren campaign was calling for Facebook to be forced to to divest, to be broken up. So it would break off like its Instagram and WhatsApp acquisitions and make those separate firms again. There's some probably legitimate value there or make forcing Google to sell off YouTube and examples like that. Like that can do something. But I think we should realize like that'll reduce how gigantically large these firms are, which has value. But also, like these firms will still be in markets, you know, capitalist markets with network effects. YouTube, whether Google is forced to sell it or not, is probably going to remain our online video monopoly. You know, Microsoft will probably remain your workplace PC operating system provider, regardless of whether it gets to hang on to word or not. So to me, these are kind of market oriented reforms. And so, of course, figures like Warren, who is basically a capitalist with social democratic affectations that she's gradually thrown in the garbage as she abject Grovels before Joe Biden. That's a sad story we can try to forget about. It's a market-friendly thing, but I don't think it's going to get rid of the monopoly power of the pieces of these firms, even if they are broken apart. So I would look favorably on it because just to stick it to these firms and make them slightly less all-powerful, but that's not going to fix the network monopoly market-dominating ramifications of just the way that these services operate. So I wouldn't be antagonistic to that, but we should realize it's just limited. It's like other antitrust you know, measures to limit monopoly. It Puts limits on monopoly, and who could say that that's not useful? We should realize that's not going to get us users and the workers in charge of these firms any sooner, though.
1: Yeah, I would just add to that, Rob. Um, I think the point that's really important to make, and I generally agree with you about kind of um, we, we shouldn't rely on anti monopoly strategies as our primary tactic to, um, you know, increase democratic control of tech companies, because that's not really going to impact their business models. It's mostly just going to make them a little bit smaller and maybe increase competition. Uh, I think we actually here should should, um, not be afraid to rely on some of the tools um, in our kind of, you know, progressive lefty toolkits, uh, which is our kind of concepts and understandings of uh, labor and how value is created, right? So we can think about, um, you know, one of the kind of core ideas of uh, Marxism and a kind of Marxist analysis is understanding that human labor is different from other types of labor, right? And that we should not um just think about ourselves as kind of human capital, right? We're we're special because we're people um, and we matter in different ways uh, than other types of labor and resources that are in the world. And I think, um, you know, Actually, sort of using this kind of an understanding to under to uh, you know formulate demands against tech is really important. In the basic sense that if we look at the business model of a company, and this is not a demand that covers all of our bases, but I think it's an important one. If we look at the business model of a company like Google or Facebook, um, they rely on all of our personal data, right? Our unpaid uh, labor—that's essential. To uh, what what is uh, effectively a very capital, you know, sort of asset light model, right? They employ relatively few people um, as paid laborers um, compared to how much reach they have or how much uh, they're worth, right? So if we're keeping with this thread of understanding our labor as something special, something different, something worth protecting, we sh- we should extend it to uh, the kind of labor that we do for these tech companies every day in the data that we produce, right? And make a and I advocate and I discuss this more in my book for a very radical demand, which is that our personal data that we generate. Right. Uh, Whether it's through scrolling the Web or posting photos or or interacting with loved ones or finding entertainment, all of this personal data that we generate is personal and it should not be available uh, to be scraped and hoarded and sold and appropriated by tech companies. Right. This is a radical demand uh, that would undercut. The business models right we can even go further and say the types of technology we use shouldn't be designed to constantly be surveilling and storing and and stealing that data right to actually say no our data is ours Um, and when it's used to for example create algorithms that are then tested out in the wild to determine who should get a job or who should go to jail or who should get parole, or who should get uh, healthcare, um, it has real material impacts on people, often in a negative way. So there should be much stricter controls about who is able to use, uh, collect, uh, and profit from all of our personal data. And I think that this is a simple demand, but it's a radical demand that would really change the landscape in terms of thinking about you know, the internet as a kind of digital commons.
0: Absolutely, and I think that shows us the ridiculously big stakes involved here. And I think that's maybe a good place for us to end is just to realize that, to a real extent, like these online platforms, like Facebook, and uh, you know, and Google, and to a lesser extent, places like Twitter, like they have to a significant extent become the public square where people exchange ideas and try to make each other aware of different things happening in the world. And that was true before we all got locked in our apartments. And now you're not allowed in the public square uh, because of the disease that's spreading around. At up to a point. So that might be a good point for us to uh, wrap up on. You need to realize the ridiculous uh, stakes of this, but there are positive things happening. People are organizing the sector. There's walkouts and uh, limited actions happening, and you can learn a lot about these things and uh, be a part of that struggle.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks, Rob. So I just want to thank everyone for tuning in, um, and particularly want to thank Haymarket for organizing this event. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, we hope to see you at future events.